is Songwriters Room, and I'm your host, Tomoko. Today's guest is Lo. Lo is a single songwriter, rapper, dancer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist who plays seven instruments. Originally from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, he grew up in a famous music family, including his grandfather, Long Island Music Hall of Fame inductee, blues soul legend, Sam Bluesman Taylor. He joined the funk legend George Clinton's 420 funk mob in the P-Funk camp at an early age. Then from there has shared the stage with many big names such as Dionne Warwick, Lionel Richie, Rick James, Shaka Khan, James Ingram, Jeffrey Osborne, Denise Williams, Tony Braxton, Alicia Keys, The Legacy, Bruno Mars, Rihanna, Neo, Black Eyed Peas, Harry Connick Jr., and Amy Winehouse, just to name a few. He has also licensed his songs to many shows on TV networks such as VH1, NBA, TV1, Oxygen, Bravo, and E, Lifetime, and MTV, including the real world Brooklyn and Hollywood. His critically acclaimed first album, The Planet 12 Syndrome, won seven Grammy nominations. He's also got a popular podcast with Who's Who in the Music Industry. You can follow him on Instagram at Planet12. Today, Law is generously giving away his song, She Can Get It, to 10 listeners. Wow. So all you have to do is to message me on my website, tomokomusic.com, and let me know which part of the show you liked. So can I get a whoop whoop? So I am psyched to chat with him today, ladies and gents. Please welcome my talented friend and music extraordinarily, La! Hey, what's going on? What's up, Lo? So good to see you. It's been a while. It's been so long. How are you? I am blessed as usual. How about okay, you? Same, you same here. Thank you so much for being on my show. First of all, let me start this conversation with relation to Amy Winehouse because when you were singing background for her at the height of her career, she asked you to open up for her at Holland Ballroom in New York City when I, I was singing background for you. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Very and, true. And I remember it was a packed house and we had a blast. And then after we finished, I was watching Amy Winehouse coming up on the stage completely wasted. And <laughs> yeah. and she was talking, and I didn't understand a word she was saying. But then I saw her drinking up the whole wine bottle like this, mm-hmm. and throw it away. And I was like, and then she started singing. It was like mesmerizing, just mm-hmm. unbelievable. So the audience went nuts because this white girl from Britain drank on the stage singing her ass off like so soulful right you know Mm -hmm. you know what i mean that was something to see so how did working with her come about okay well um it came about through me being on the corporate gig scene through a friend of mine by the name of al street Mm -hmm. al street is an incredible guitar player and he me and him have been doing a lot of corporate gigs for a while and we just liked each other. You know how it is with most band members and stuff like that. You know, you do gigs. Like, hey, I like your stuff. I like your stuff. Hey, that's cool. That's cool. And 
one night he would always say to me, he's like, yo, Lord, we got to do something one of these days. And I'm, I'm the kind of person, I'm like, hey, whenever you're ready, man. Like, here's my number, call me. But little did I know that when he called me, he had called me because it was based upon him recommending me for a corporate gig that they had for a jingles company. The lead singer that they had for the group didn't, didn't show up. So wow. it's like a last minute thing. Here's the interesting thing about that is that my band, Planto Movement, you know, Dorsey and those guys, they were rehearsing and I literally left the rehearsal. They, we, we were rehearsing for three hours. I left the rehearsal early so I can go and do this show with these guys. So basically in doing a gig with these guys in the band was a guy by the name of Neil Sugarman. So for those that don't know, Neil Sugarman is um, not only an incredible saxophone player, but the creator of the, the almighty famous Daptone Records, for those that know about old retro R&B, you know, funk, old school recording. And of course, he's the leader of the Dap Kings, which was spearheaded by the late, great Sharon Jones, AKA Auntie, you know, rest in peace. Um, my, my uncle grew up with Sharon in Fort Greene. So that's, that's my history with Sharon Jones. But as most of the people in London and around the world, they knew Sharon Jones and Dap Kings because of that raw R&B 60s kind of early 70s kind of sound. So I'm meeting him for the first time. So he's in this unit. Come to find out, him and Al Street used to be in a group called Three. See, I didn't know this about Al at the time. I just knew Al as the guy that played on guitar on my other corporate gig. And that was it. So I did the gig. I killed it. And then I get a call from, from Dorsey. <laughs> By the way, shout out to Dorsey. Yeah, shout out to Scott Dorsey Parker. I, I love it. You know, that's that's my dude. And it's like, he called me up and he was like, listen, Lord, we need we need you back at the rehearsal. I'm like, okay, I got to, you know, I got to succumb to this and go. Because at the time, you know, we were still gelling at that particular point. We were coming together, doing a lot of great shows. But it was one of those things, I guess, where I had to make sure everybody was getting along and locking together. So I only did two sets with Neil and Alan, those guys. And they were like, oh, you got to go. I was like, yeah, I got I to kind of leave early. I said, because I got to make sure my bags. We had, cause matter of fact, we had a show coming up. I think it was that weekend. We had a show coming up. And um, I'm like, I got I to at least be on point with these guys. It's the only time we got to rehearse. So I said, but I love y'all guys so much. Here's my card. Gave them my card. Didn't think nothing of it. I figured they'd probably call me for a couple of the gigs, probably down the line or whatever. Little did I know, about probably a week later, I get a call from this guy named Nathaniel who works with this guy named Ray. Out of nowhere, it's like, hey, Lo, you may not know me, but my name is Nathaniel and, and I'm one of the managers for Sharon Jones and the Daphne. I'm like, oh, Auntie Sharon. He's like, oh, you know Sharon? I said, do I? I said, next time you speak to her, tell her Uncle Tony T-Funk said, what's up? Because they grew up together in Fort Greene. And of course he did that. He's like, oh, wow. She said, that's crazy. He's like, so, yeah. I said, well, listen, that's not why I called you. But interestingly enough, wow, it makes a lot of sense. So here's the deal, Law. We have this artist by the name of Amy Winehouse. She's going to be making her American television debut. Have you ever heard of her? I was like, no, which was pretty shocking for me because I'm usually up on everybody. And I'm like, no, I don't know who this is. And she's like, yeah, well, she'll be making her David Letterman debut, um, 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 you know, and sometime in, I forgot, was it October, September? He's like, and we've been checking you out. And we heard some great things about you because of, you know, Neil, ha Neil and have been talking about me. And at that particular point in my career, you know, I, I had sang back up for 
Freddie Jackson. You know, I had worked with so many different people, and I was part of P-Bunk already. So it's like I was at a level where it's not arrogance, it's not conceit. It was just more like I'm not just singing back up behind anybody. I got to see who this person is. They could be trying to hire me to sing back up behind anybody. And, and I don't want, you know, when, I don't care what anybody says. Your name and your resume is attached to anybody who you work with. So it, it had to mean something. So I went on. I said, listen, I said, I'm going to call y'all guys back. I gotta, let me look at my schedule, and I'm going to hit y'all guys right back. I promise. That could have easily went left me. That could have easily went with somebody else, and I could have just not called them back or procrastinated. But you know what I did. I went ahead, and I went on the Internet, and I typed the name Winehouse. And a song called F Me Pumps came up. Very intriguing title. I'm like, hmm, okay, let's see what this is about. I pressed play. I was blown away. I heard jazz. I heard R&B. I heard hip-hop. And then she had the whole Ronnie Spector hairdo. So I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, this is, this, this is different. I'm like, I like this. And before you know it, before the end of that record, because it's not when, when, I, when I say the title of the song, it's not what people automatically think it is when I say EpiPump. I'm like, no, it's not what you think it is. It's actually a message song. So basically, after I heard that, I called them right back 10 minutes later. Yes, yes, I will gladly take the job. So um, after that, they said, okay, okay, we're going to be, you're going to send you an advanced copy of um, her new album, Back to Black. I didn't realize that she had another album out before. See, a lot of people think that Back to Black is her first album. Frank is her first album. And that's actually my favorite Amy album. I like that. I mean, I love Back to Black, but I love Frank. Oh, okay. And I became, a, I became a fan because for me, the same backup for you, I have to be a fan of what you're doing. So mm -hmm. it just made sense. So after I heard the first three songs, they gave me an advanced copy. They had Rehab on it. They had um, You Know I'm No Good. I was already a fan before I had the first rehearsal. So the rest is history. That, okay. That's how that started. How was it like working with her? Unbelievable. I've always said that naturally her vices were no secrets, everybody. Everybody kind of knew. But anytime that I talk about her, I prefer to talk about the knowledge of music that this girl knew and she was only 24. Mm. You know, I call her my little sis because she was, you know, she's younger than, than, than me and the rest of the guys in the, in the unit. And what blew my mind is that as I listened to more of her music and got to know her on a personal level without her even having to really say anything, what I want the world to know about Amy is that Amy knew her music. She knew about Donny Hathaway. I put her to the test. I said, you mentioned <laughs> Donny Hathaway. I said, I said, what's your favorite Donny Hathaway album? And she says, well, you know, I love the first album, but Extension of a Man, that's my favorite. I'm like, okay, she knows her stuff. I'm like, okay, this is not, this is not, this is, This is not some girl trying to be, you know, a, a wannabe. Because, you know, in the industry, a lot of times what happens is that they'll sign an artist that has no real extensive knowledge about the music that they're trying to base their success off of. So for me, it became a thing as to where I started looking at artists like, okay, yeah, you got a hit record, but what's you really about? Because I'm, I'm, I'm like that with everybody. I'm just like, what's your story? Like, what's your whole MO? Do you really know what you're singing about? And, and that's a habit I guess I get from my grandfather because, you know, he worked with so many female artists and I had to do my own research even when he was still alive on why did he like these particular women so much. Like, I want to find out, like, what is it about her that made you want to produce and write songs for her? And the more I got to know that, so I'm like my grandfather, that's, we're both Scorpios. We're very, 
Scorpio. Very intense. Yeah, you know, Scorpio's in the building. Like we, we study, we're very observant about a lot of stuff. So the spirits pick up very quickly. And working with her was just a blast because, you know, she would come in the sound check, you know, sometimes she won't be all there, you know, and sometimes she would be, you know, straight and narrow. She'd come in, ready to sing, and then um, go right back to being with her boyfriend, Blake. Her Blake would be right there sometimes, just hanging out, chilling. He was real cool, you know, hanging out, chilling. She would do the sound check, get it over with, and then go right back to what she was doing unless we were all hanging out together. So, um, you know, I miss her so much, but Amy was amazing to work with, you know, for, for a girl that had all these different vices pulling at her and who she was, the music truly mattered. Her talent is unmeasured. You're not, you're not gonna find only, a, a lot of talent like hers comes like once in a lifetime. She's not, not too many people that can be able to c convey the musical message and go from jazz to blues to R&B and to hip hop in a single bound. And that reminds me a lot of me. That's another reason why I want to work with her because she felt a lot musically like the same way I did. So. Well, right, exactly. I always thought that your uh, music is so great because it has all kinds of elements like hip hop, funk, blues, R&B, and rock. And like you say, you're balancing the commercial element but still staying true to your underground roots. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. right. So I guess it has a lot to do with uh, growing up with your grandfather, Sam Taylor. And, and of course, one of the, your mentors is the Josie Clinton. Of course. <laughs> so I guess it comes very natural to you. Can you elaborate on that? Um, well, in hindsight, from a family perspective, yeah, it came naturally. But, but here's the thing, though. Even with it being natural, you still got to work at it. No singer, no musician, not even a rapper. I don't care how natural or what your upbringing is. The whole point of being any one of those things is constant elevation. So if you're not constantly getting better at what you do, even at this, even at this stage in the game, like I still practice. I'm still that same 16-year-old kid in Brooklyn picking up his guitar and his bass. Like, I, like I, I got to have something in my hand. And, you know, I'm, I'm at this age. I'm a grown man with kids. I'm a grandfather. So it's like it's interesting that as a, I have still have those, those teenage childhood tendencies where I just grab something and just want to riff on it or play on it, sing something write something down, you know, those elements as a kid still exist within the way that I practice, the way that I approach things in the studio. Um, so yeah, it does come naturally, but in order to perfect your craft and to get the kind of resume that I have or anybody else, you have to put in some work. You have to put in work to a point where, you know, you're not even going into auditions anymore. Cause when I got the gig with Amy, it wasn't an audition. I literally just did a gig with two of her band members Right. And they love what I did. And then, of course, they called me. They found me. I gave my number. They could they could have easily went with anybody else. I've always said that. They could have went with anybody else in the world. But they chose me. So I can't. And the thing with me is that, you know, in the words of the great actress, um, Shirley Lee Ralph, the original Dina from Dreamgirls, <laughs> mm -hmm. stay ready so that you never have to get ready. And that's always been a philosophy with me. So even as natural as it is, because, you know, again, growing up, my family was my Juilliard for music, my, my whole family, my mother, my grandfather, my uncles. My, so it, it's surrounded by it, but they couldn't be around me all the time. So what do you think that little Lawrence was doing the time that he couldn't be around um, his mother or, or his grandfather? My mother, my mother be asleep. I'd be up at three or four o'clock in the morning studying that Michael Jackson record, trying to get this one riff that he got in the song. And I'm only like eight or nine years old. So that's pat that's what you call passion because you're that deep. I was that deep as a kid. 
I was really in, like into the art of let me mash this so I can't mash this no more. And then my uncle Bobby, God bless his soul, he was on me. Like he would be the person they would come in with his friends from getting high, um, you know, hanging out. Him and his friends were in the do-out group. And he would be the one like Joseph Jackson. He would be arguing with his bandmates. Now I'm, I'm in the room halfway asleep. I'm listening to them, but I'm still like, like this. And he would be like, no, Squeaky, you can't even hit that note right. My nephew can do it better than you. Matter of fact, you know what? Yo, Lawrence, wake up. <laughs> wake up. Yo, yo, come in here and hit that note from Always In Forever by Heat Wave. You know what part I'm talking about, the bridge. You know, when he, when, when um, Johnny Wilder does all this, this falsetto stuff. So I was doing that at five or six, and my uncle counted on me because I wanted to be so much like him. But at four o'clock in the morning, it's probably why my sleep thing is so crazy now, because at four in the morning, I'm 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 only six six or five years old singing with my uncle's do out group and they like yo he going that's gonna be a bad one day that's gonna be the he gonna be he, he got it like he got it so um you can't help but that when you have that kind of encouragement from your uncle and his friends you can't you really can't lose so I was already like set up for for success you know having having one of the greatest families in the world you know stand behind you so again you know to to answer your question. Having it naturally is great, but having that encouragement made you want to practice every single day so you can be able to be at your best when you got their age. Of you know course. what I mean? And, and, my, and, and my uncle died before he could really see the power of his. I mean, he knew it was there because he already had trained me and, 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 and his kids and everything like that. But he died before he can really see me make the dude that I that I was that I'm making now. So. It's interesting. Whereas my grandfather continued the journey with me. Me and him continued it together. And so, yeah. And then with George Clinton, of course, because I've always felt like this. Between Prince and Stevie, if there was one guy that could understand how crazy my musical mind worked, it would be George. Because George wasn't just, he's not just the godfather of funk. George put everything in the mix. Funk may have been the main calling card, but if you listen to a Funkadelic album, hear a song like Little Old Country Boy. Um, that's a that's country meets funk. Then you hear a song like um, Let Me Be, where it's all class, Bernie Worrell playing all classical music. String ensemble, no guitars, no drums, no bass. It's a keyboard arp ensemble. Quirky as hell. That's George. George listened to everything from the Beatles to Charlie Daniels. Mm. So that's, you know, not just sliding the family song, all those other groups that he loved or he influenced, he put everything together. It's like a big pot of gumbo. So that made it, you know, a, a whole thing. So as I got older, before I would, you know, years later, before I would meet him, I would study these Parliament Funkadelic albums and be like, see, that's the, that's the thing I'm trying to do. Like, how does he mix the heavy metal thing with the funk rock thing? And he's doing jazz one minute, you know, Bootsy's playing. I'm like, that's jazz. But it's still over a funk groove. And I'm like, He's making all these worlds collide. So at 11 to 12, that's what my world was. My, my musical worlds were colliding around that time because hip hop that just came into the picture, that's the youth driven music. So for my era, it's like, and then the same rap guys who I like, what were they all sampling? P-Funk. So it's hey. like, oh, shoot. oh, okay. James, Bra oh, oh, wow. Like, that's my world between the ages of seven and 12. I'm realizing I'm putting all this together. Nobody's teaching me this in class or anything. I'm putting it together for myself mentally and understanding how all these things work. So having a grandfather like Sam Bluesman Taylor, 
where the foundation of doo-wop, rock and roll, and R&B is already, and blues is already present, and with gospel, because he sang gospel too. And then, you know, even though I wouldn't meet George two years later, George and George and Prince and Stevie Wonder made me have a better understanding that it was really okay to be that musically diverse. You didn't have to stay in one lane, even though automatically because you're black, they already consider you to be r and I'm like, yeah, I get that part of it. That's the marketing. That's what labels come up with. But anybody that knows Stevie Wonder and Prince, those guys were way more than just their, their so-called genres. You know, Prince didn't play just funk. That's why I like Prince records because every Prince album was different. You know, he's doing punk rock one minute. You know, on what's the song, Blue Light? That's reggae. On the symbol album, he's doing reggae. Then the next minute, he's doing hip hop. My name is Prince. He's rapping. He's rapping. So it's like, oh, shoot. I really, this is the type of world I want to live in. I want to be able to, to do any style of music that I want and not be criticized for it and not be looked upon as, you're not supposed to do that. You're this kind of artist. So um, so long story short, that's where all that comes from. So I, I you know all that, that whole arena right there, that became my go-to because everybody else who I love is all in between those guys. So, mm -hmm. that's awesome. You are so blessed. Thank um, you. Well, P Funk is one of the bands I think that changed the course of American music history. That's they, whew, they, right. they, they, they defined it and redefined it on many different levels. <laughs> so I know you learned a lot musically, but uh, outside of the music, what have you learned from him? Um, a, a lot of things from George. Um, well, first and foremost, there are no rules. George tried to play by the rules, but the funny thing about George is that if you look at the history of P-Funk, that's how the P-Funk sound developed. So a little bit of history for those that don't know, as you may know. The Parliaments were originally a doo-wop group. So we talk about the 1950s, you know, I just want to testify what your love has done for me. You know, very doo-wop-ish R&B. And Funkadelic was the backup band. Those were the, those were the kids. They were playing mm -hmm. behind the parliaments. Billy Bass mm -hmm. Nelson, Eddie Hazel, um, Tall Ross, Richard Boyce. Um, then later on, of course, Bernie Worrell, you know, um, and those guys. Like, the whole thing with that is that they, when, when, I just want to testify first hit. It hit at a time when doo-wop was just kind of fading out. So they were lucky to get a hit. So now at this time, the sound was starting to change. Now R&B was becoming, you know, yeah, I remember George had that Motown thing. As a matter of fact, he was a staff writer for Motown during the height of the Parliament thing in the beginning. He was a staff writer. Oh. One of, one of his biggest records was a record he wrote for the Jackson 5 called I'll Bet You. I speak on a red hot stove mail, and I bet you, if you want to win it, hey. Jackson 5 recorded that, recorded that for their ABC album. Wow. But George and them, as Funkadelic, recorded it three years before that, but they always recorded it with different artists because they were trying to sell that song as a hit. So it was never a huge hit for them. Now, now of course, diehard P-Funk fans know the song, but... The, but Jackson 5 fans, when they first heard that, so it's like, that's Jackson 5. I said, that's really a Funkadelic song that they recorded over. And I love the Jackson 5 version. To hear Michael Jackson singing those lyrics, him, and the funny thing about that record is that Jackson 5 version, that's the first record where you hear all five Jackson brothers singing lead. Because prior to that, it was always Jermaine and Michael singing the lead. But on that record, 
you hear Tito for the first time. They're like, he's like, Tito doesn't sing. I'm like, yes, he does. They all sing. And it's like, <laughs> so on that record, you hear Jackie. Jackie was always the first tenor four or seven. I'm like, that's all five guys singing. So um, in a lot of ways, and mind you, and when you hear the original version, that's how the style is. Because in, par in the Parliament version, George sings the first part. Um, Calvin sings the other part. Ray Davis had that, if you're better on the horse, and the, like very... He was very structured in that doo-wop R&B sense. So by the time 67, 68 rolled around, the psychedelic rock thing was happening. And Sly and the Family Stone was like the pinnacle of that. You know, Jefferson Airplane, um, The Who, all that. And George was into all of that. So when he realized, he said, the doo-wop thing, you know, we was kind of late. Testify hit real big in 64, 65. But by the time we had a hit record with that song, the industry was kind of moving on. They were going into the psychedelic thing. So we said, okay, but we can't get that rock sound. So one night they was touring with Vanilla Fudge and they lost their equipment. Vanilla Fudge is one of my favorite um, funk and psychedelic rock um, rock R&B bands because they did a lot of R&B covers on For those that don't know, Vanilla Fudge, um, their biggest hit is a remake of the Supremes, You Keep Me Hanging On. It's actually my favorite remake of all time because I love the Supremes, but I've always thought... Set me free, why don't you, baby? Vanilla Fudge was more like, set me free, why don't you, baby? Get out my... Very, like, funky and hard. These are all right. white boys. So one night, Funkadelic left their equipment. So Vanilla Fudge lent Funkadelic their equipment, these loud amps. George said that when they plugged into those amps and they heard the sound, George was like, oh, my God, this is the sound we've been looking for. This is the rock sound that we've been looking for. And that's when they became Funkadelic. So now all of a sudden, the whole change of the funk thing, but it was more like on a real, like wah-wah guitars, loud solos. They wanted to play loud and aggressive. Like I've always told people, James Brown created the funk, Sly and the Family Stone diversified the funk, but George Clinton and P-Funk made funk religious. It became a movement. Mm -hmm. George and them got involved. George had the look, the personification. He had these little quirky melodies that didn't seem to fit over the groove that they were doing. And then plus, he was doing some unconventional stuff that even Sly wasn't doing, because Sly was a game changer. But George took what he learned from both James Brown and Sly and made a whole nother thing. You know, he was, you know, you, you know the stories, George, he was the first one to have a mohawk before mohawk was even a, a, a um, hairstyle. George was the first one to cut both sides of his hair and come out butt naked with just a sheet on and not even sing. He just be like, they just loud, wild stuff on stage. They created <laughs> the greatest dilemma of all time, which is basically they were too psychedelic for the black audiences, but yet too hood and too black for the white audience. Right, right, That's right. how their whole movement got created. All those guys in between those two mediums is the P-Funk fans you still now see here 50 years later. It created that because in the 80s, when their popularity died down, George Clinton produced Red Hot Chili Peppers. That gave them a whole nother audience. And then, mm. of course, with hip-hop sampling every P-Funk groove you can think about. I mean, Dr. Dre owes his whole career to P-Funk because all those NWA albums are all 90% P-Funk sample. Mm -hmm. So this is the reason why I learned from him. So the thing I learned from them is there are no rules. George didn't have any rules. The first five Funkadelic albums didn't even sell all that well because it was so musically all over the place. And, you know, George was panning tracks, trying to, 
panning stuff from left to right. One speaker be saying one thing, another speaker be saying another thing. It was weird. And you know, these guys were sampling LSD and popping quaaludes like candy. So of course, they're coming in the studio with their minds warped. So who knows what in the world would possess them to write a song called um, Jimmy's Got a Little Bitch in Him. Who the hell would write a song like that? Jimmy's <laughs> Got a Little Bit of Bitch in Him. I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, that's some crazy stuff. So, but I loved it. You know, even though I was a kid, it was way done before I was even born. But when I got into it, I'm like, that sounds like something I would do. I like the fact that he's very childish and very, you know, him and Bootsy, like they're very, like very interplanetary. That's and I, and I know how I made Planet 12 because the whole thing was just that it didn't make sense until I discovered those records. Then I was like, you know what? I'm kind of weird too. I love sci-fi as well. I like to be in outer space. Dr. Dr. Frankenstein? No, Dr. Funkenstein. Ah. <laughs> chemicals. I'm like, I see what he's doing. And mind you, I'm an 80s baby, so I had to go backwards. I had to listen to all this old stuff that came a decade before, you know, my existence. So um, the other thing I learned, too, and this is the reason why George Clinton is still relevant in 2020. George has always been about the youth. As I told you earlier, mm -hmm. originally before he merged the two ideas of Parliament Funkadelic, Parliament were the older guys, Funkadelic was the younger guys, all the teenagers. Billy Bass Nelson, Bernie Worrell, Tiki, Eddie Hazel, all those guys were teenagers when they were playing on all those records. They were only like 18, 17 years old. I mean, Bernie was the youngest. So think about that for one second. The course of George's entire career, if you look at Funkadelic as a whole, if you look at the 80s period, a lot of those guys that came and went, because there's like over 100 members in P Funkadelic, of course, me being one of them. There's a bunch of members, a bunch of us. A lot of those guys got brought in by George because George always saw something in a young guitar player or a young bass player or a young drummer. I mean, one of my favorite bass players is a legendary Rocky Skeet, who later joined P-Funk in 1978. They called the Baltimore Connection. Him, Dennis Chambers, and Greg Boyle, who, who later would play with Prince. Greg Boyle, that's all Baltimore. They all played with P-Funk first, and they were all like 17, 18 years old. Mm. So George has always been about the youth. And the one thing they asked me in an interview recently, they said to him, well, George, you know, um, how do you feel like, what do you feel like funk is going now? What do you think? And he said something that was very profound. He said, well, before I answer that, I want to say to, to some of these other guys who are around my age, don't be the old guy in the room. That's how he talks. Don't be the old guy in the room. And I didn't know what that meant. I'm like, what does that mean? But then he broke it down. He said, because the funny thing that I've noticed over the years is that anytime the new thing comes out, if the parents hate it, that's the new thing. You right. want to know why? Because when Parliament Parli Parli Funkadelic came out, the parents hated us. So when rap happened, same thing. George always said that when everybody when everybody started hating on that one element, he ran to it. Perfect example. James Brown did not like the fact that rappers were sampling his stuff. And he said, Well, if you're gonna sample me, you better, you know, make sure you pay me. I'm gonna sue you. He had a he had a very, you know, I love James, but James had a very sort of like old school, like your father kind of mentality. And right, like I said, he's James Brown, he has a right to. Whereas George is like the cool uncle mm. that you want to hang out with. And George wanted you to sample all his stuff. He didn't care. George didn't care if you cursed on a record. Why is that? Because he cursed on his record. Right. You know what I mean? So 
that's the reason why in the last five years, George Clinton has been on Kendrick's Lamar album. He was on Kendrick, that's crazy. Wow. He's on Kendrick's Lamar album. He was on, um, he just did something for Disney, the troll movie. He's on that, Atomic Dog. That's Disney. George Clinton and Disney. I, if, if you were a regular person that didn't know music, you couldn't see that. So that shows you how relevant it is because of what he said. He said, don't be the old guy in the room. He said, because you have to always be open to change. He said, now I'm going to still be who I am because I've always adopted to whatever change. And I, that's why he's doing trap from now. You see these, these days he has his grandkids on stage with him now. And they, they do the whole rap thing, the whole trap thing. And I like him because all them boys can rap. I, I got a chance to hang out with them the whole time on the road with them. All of them can rap. Shout out to third, shout out to boo. Um, shout out to um, Scotty Clinton. Like they all can rhyme and they're all extremely talented. You know, the fact that George has his grandkids and his kids on stage with him the last, what, six or seven years or so, that shows you. He gives them the spotlight. Like, he's still going to give you all the classic stuff that you're going to want to hear from P-Funk, but he's also showing you that I'm on this new thing, too. I'm not going to blind myself because the thing is just that he said the more you get into what your kids are into, the more they're going to be receptive to who you are. Right. And it's funny because me and my kids are the same way. That's why me and my kids can talk about music all day because I like some of the stuff. I don't, I don't like all the new stuff. I like some of it. Like some of whoever, depending on who it is. But at least they know that their father, he ain't just some old school guy tucked away and don't want to hear. I'm like, no, I, I could never be that guy because I'm part of the generation that spearheaded what you're seeing now. I'm part of it. So how could I possibly shun away somebody who's trying to rap? I just said, my thing is just that be different. My thing is, if you're going to rap, I understand if you want to do the new thing, but if you're going to do the new thing, try to be a little bit different than the other guy who's out there now. That's my only, that's my only um, qualm. Right. Other than that, I think like George does, I'm very much into um, seeing a lot of new artists try different things and, and bring their own spin to it, but just don't be redundant about it. Whereas George, you know, George is the same way. George is like, I like what they're doing. And, and George is for real with it. George loves Cardi B. He's the biggest Cardi B fan. You would never wow. think that, right? Wow. He knows all the lyrics to Bodak Yellow. I promise you. What? George, all the lyrics. All the lyrics. Matter of fact, the last point I'm going to make about George. When the Yin Yang Twins came out, what, 2007, I believe, probably a little bit later than that, or probably earlier than that, they had that song, Get Low. And that's one of the most popular dance songs from the, to the window, to the wall. And here's the funny thing. I mean, you already know what that song is saying. You know the lyrics. I can't say it here. But the thing is that's that, you know, the whole, from the, to the sweat comes down by, you know, on, on Steve Ski. Now, it's funny to me. So one night, I hadn't played with George for a minute. We had a show on 420 Front Mob and Nuts. So George comes out. You know, George don't come out to like probably two or three songs later. He'll come out. The crowd is screaming. Like, George lives in the house. He comes out. They screaming. So George grabs the mic. Yeah. Check it out, y'all. To the window, to the wall, to the sweat cup. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm like, oh my God, what he must like that song. But then when we hung out backstage, I said, so dad, I call him dad. I said, so dad, you like you like the yin yang twins? You know what he said to me? He said, Of course I do. You don't realize that um to the um get low into the window to the walls, that's like something that we would have did back in 75. And guess what? It's true because what's one of Funkadelic's most popular songs? It, I am. Get off your ass and jam. That sounds like the Yang Yang Twins. I'm like, you know what? I didn't put that together. 
And he said, oh, you got a good ear. He said, now you understand what I'm, I said, it makes sense. So George, he said, they remind me of me because all those, those guys, the Southern rappers from the ATL and all that, like, like, um, Outkast and, um, Goody Mob and, um, you know, Jeezy and all those guys and little, little Wayne from the um, New Orleans, their parents grew up on Parliament Funkadelic. So even though we're part of the generation that created hip hop and we bringing this new thing into it, if you put on We Want the Funk for any one of those guys from that rap era, they're going to start, you know, even Snoop, look at Snoop. They're going to start dancing and stuff because that's the music their parents grew up on. So to know that the artists who you love from back in your parents' day love you like that, that's the best feeling in the world. I love the relationship between Snoop and, and, um, and George Clinton because that shows you right there. You know, George embraced Snoop when Snoop came into the industry. He embraced him. Like, yeah, sample all my stuff, man. Heck yeah, do it, you know. A lot of old school artists wouldn't do that. So that's so just, that's just a few of the things. I know it's kind of long, long-winded, but that's just a few of the things I learned from working with George and being a disciple and being a member of the P-Funk camp. You know, before I became a member, I already knew all this stuff, but once I got in the camp, I just watched a lot of a lot of things began to make sense for me on why P Funk is still relevant even now in 2020. That's huge because the older you get, a lot of people they think they know everything, but certain yeah. energy it's either contract or it keep expanding. That's right. That's right. You're right. Absolutely. I remember mm -hmm. I went to see uh, his show in Japan, <laughs> and they kept on for three hours, nonstop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the drama was like, I thought he must be tired. <laughs> you got to have a certain strength to play with. My my, my first P-Funk-related gig, you have to play the same lick for, I mean, it probably won't be audible, but the same lick you have to play, play that flashlight lick. to play that lick for 20 minutes <laughs> so thank the lord that my training ground was already about 14 years in right. your stamina and your ability and your endurance as a musician as much as it is as a performer has to be ready and especially with p-funk because you gotta remember some shows i've seen one p-funk show that was an hour which was weird <laughs> i've seen <laughs> one show that was two hours I, I've been a part of some other shows where we played for almost four hours. Oh, yeah. Wow. I'm used to it, though. I've been doing that since I was 12, so I, I'm used to it. So Yeah, that's why you got a lot of energy on stage. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you know firsthand. You've seen it, so. Fantastic. Okay, so we can talk all night, but uh, I'm going to get to the part two about songwriting. I hope you enjoyed part one. Please continue to watch part two about songwriting as well. And don't forget to click subscribe and hit the bell to get notified about new videos of Songwriter's Room, my new music, or Japan news series. Arigato!